Chris Capozzi and Jan Beatty have three children, Elizabeth, 14, Aaron, 11, and Ty, who's seven. With each pregnancy, Jan and Chris decided in advance to refuse all prenatal testing. But when Jan was pregnant with Aaron, her first ultrasound at 19 weeks showed some markers for Down syndrome. Jan and Chris had to decide quickly if this time they would opt for prenatal testing, if only to get a definitive answer. Chris is a biomedical ethicist and Jan is a nurse, so they brought unique forms of medical knowledge to the questions they had to ask and answer quickly. Since Aaron's birth, Chris has written the book Choosing Down Syndrome, Ethics and New Prenatal Testing Technologies. In this episode of Lifespan, Jan and Chris talk about their family, disability, and society. Well, I kind of think of our family as beginning with our first child, who she's 14, and that's Elizabeth. And I had a, a, a wonderful pregnancy with her. We had a midwife, and um, we felt very informed with all the decisions that we made with her. And I didn't have prenatal testing. I was 31 when I gave birth to her. And then we moved, and we moved to Nova Scotia. Jan and Chris are Canadian, so some of their story is unique to the Canadian healthcare system, but most of their experience will also sound familiar to those of us living in the United States. After Elizabeth's birth, Jan and Chris knew they eventually wanted another child. Jan's second pregnancy ended in miscarriage, and so when she became pregnant for the third time, she was understandably anxious. I was worried that I was going to miscarry again. I had a lot of anxiety. But we were making the same decisions we did with Elizabeth. We had decided that we wouldn't do early prenatal testing. We would wait and see and do just a regular 20-week ultrasound. When Jan had the first ultrasound midway through her pregnancy with Aaron, neither Jan nor Chris considered the ultrasound to be a significant medical decision. As they both noted, ultrasound today is a part of routine prenatal care. Almost everyone has at least one ultrasound during a pregnancy. In fact, ultrasounds have become rituals that parents look forward to. We wanted to look at the baby's heart beating, which is, you know, sort of an experience that you want to have. And so we agreed to the ultrasound and very much looking forward to it. And we'd done ultrasounds with Elizabeth as well. And this time was a little bit different. The tech noticed something. There's a couple of markers. I remember the technician was taking a lot of extra time. And then she left the room and she came back. She said, we're just going to check a few more things. When we got home, my family doctor called us at home and said something showed up on the ultrasound. There was a flash of light, I guess, on his, in the heart and the bowel. And she said, it could be an indication of Down syndrome. And if you want to know more, you have to get your blood work done like today. So I was in panic. I felt really overwhelmed. And we were scared. But at the same time, I knew lots of people that had blood work done. The blood work Jan refers to as a maternal serum screening test. It's not a diagnostic test. It's a screening test that tells you the probability of a fetus having one of several genetic anomalies, including Down syndrome. The screening test revealed that there is a one in six chance of some sort of abnormality. 
A few friends of Jan's and Chris's had also undergone similar screening during pregnancy, and the results of their tests had come back with a 1 in 50 chance of a genetic condition, and in another case, a 1 in 100 chance. They were really upset about it. So we were receiving a 1 in 6 chance. And to me, just based on the, the previous experience of our friends, I thought that this meant that it was definitely for sure that a baby had some sort of genetic condition. These test results are always like teasers. If you want more information, they have to go more invasive. So we went from the ultrasound to the maternal serum screen, and then we were offered a sort of more detailed ultrasound and then a amniocentesis. And eventually we ended up with the amniocentesis and, and finally got the, the diagnosis that Aaron his name wasn't Aaron at that point. <laughs> he was a fetus, but that he had Down syndrome. And just looking back on it, it's really interesting how we began not wanting prenatal testing, but we ended up with the full package, the full court press, the amniocentesis, which, by the way, carries a risk of miscarriage. It's called invasive for a reason. I was already so anxious early in my pregnancy about losing the pregnancy. I felt like the decision to do prenatal testing had a lot to do with just making me feel more calm. Jan decided to go ahead with amniocentesis because she wanted definitive information. During an amniocentesis, a physician inserts a hollow needle into the uterus to take a sample of amniotic fluid. The fluid contains fetal cells that are then examined for abnormalities. Amniocentesis is not routinely recommended because, as Chris mentioned earlier, it can, in rare instances, cause miscarriage. But for Jan at that point, her central question was, if the test is positive for Down syndrome, what does this diagnosis mean for our family? What would it mean for Elizabeth to have a brother who had Down syndrome? You know, would it take away from her and what she was able to do? And I remember saying out loud, like, did we forget to have this conversation? I said to Chris, did we forget to have the conversation about what we'd do if this pregnancy wasn't just like our first pregnancy and pretty straightforward? When the amniocentesis was done, um, we had to wait two or three days before the results came back. They were sent off for rapid testing. And... Um, and the doctor called from home. And I do remember getting the results and feeling like my heart had just been ripped out of my chest. I was, I, yeah, I was a mess with the results. Everything happened really quickly. It happened within, it was like you know, we had to make really quick, fast decisions because I was halfway through my pregnancy. But even before receiving the results of the amniocentesis, Jan knew what her decision would be. I wasn't going to terminate the pregnancy. I was already feeling flips in my belly, those early flips and lovely feelings. And I already knew that he was my baby. So I think it was more just giving me that, that power to say, okay, I know what's coming. So it sounds like the decision was really based on you just wanted more knowledge. I feel like knowledge is power, but I feel like my knowledge has changed that, that like I wouldn't recommend somebody else doing the same, which is funny. But she added she would never again have prenatal testing. And indeed, during her last pregnancy with Ty, who is now seven, 
she rejected testing. Because we knew so much more about Down syndrome and it wasn't as scary anymore. We had Aaron, we adored him. We were in touch with people and families and we understood Down syndrome so much more as not something to be feared. For Chris, the exact steps of decision-making when they learn that Aaron had some markers for Down syndrome are fuzzy now. But Chris confirms that at every step, all decisions were ultimately Jan's to make. When it came to the amnio, for example, Chris said, they're sticking the needle in her belly. So, of course, the decision was hers. But at some point, we definitively decided that, yes, Jan would go ahead with the pregnancy. And again, it was Jan's, Jan's decision. She had a real personal relationship with him at that point, even though he was still in utero. So she regarded him as her son. And so really for her, there was no question of terminating. We're both pro-choice. Uh, I had just finished a postdoctoral fellowship in bioethics looking at abortion access in Canada. So very much in favor of, of access to abortion. The genetic counselor we talked to did mention that, you know, all the options are on the table. But still, it was really no question at that time that Jan would be going ahead with the, with the pregnancy. Despite the firm decision to continue with the pregnancy, Chris and Jan still grappled with the results of the amniocentesis. And I remember going back to work and one of my colleagues saying to me, is everything okay? Did you get the answers you had hoped for? And I broke down crying and said, no, the baby has Down syndrome. And she told me a beautiful story about her nephew, who was a teenager and pretty much a typical teenager with lots of attitude and doing wonderfully and had all kinds of gold medals and Special Olympics. And she told me what a fantastic kid he was. And from there, he started seeking out, talking to other families. I'll confess at this point that when I was pregnant at 38 in 1990, I too grappled with the offer of prenatal testing and ultimately refused it. At the time, all prenatal testing was invasive, limited to amniocentesis or chorionic villi sampling. While, like Jan and Chris, I'm pro-choice, I was overjoyed to be pregnant. To choose prenatal testing for a deeply wanted pregnancy seemed wrong. For me, at that moment, I didn't want to put myself in the position of saying, I really, really want a baby, but I don't want this particular baby. I was prepared to love and care for and nurture my child, whatever their skills or limitations turned out to be. And we all have limitations. Jen and Chris pointed out another reality. Anyone, child or adult, can become disabled at any time of life. If my child is in an accident, a, a car accident or a bike accident, has some sort of head trauma, or anything as a disability later on in life, we don't just walk away from them. That was a conversation that really helped put it into perspective. Jan describes Aaron's birth. I did go into labor a little bit early, it was 37 weeks. Elizabeth was born at 36 weeks. I wanted to have that natural birth that I had and expected to have, and I did, and I had a beautiful birth. It was quick. We got to the hospital. One of my contractions actually started to speed up. My mom had shown up, so she was there with my daughter. So there was that relief. Aaron was born, and um, he came out, and I saw his beautiful pink 
body and he was screaming. One of the things we were told was that he might come out and need some help or support with breathing, but he was screaming and hollering. So we knew that his lungs were good. A team of doctors came in, I guess, and had a quick look over at him and then they brought him back to me and I got to hold him on my chest and he was just under a little bit of weight that they wanted to take him to the NICU. So they didn't let him stay with me for very long. But he had a tongue thrust that was interfering with breastfeeding. Chris describes extended family members welcoming Aaron. Everybody was so supportive. They treated Aaron's arrival just like the arrival of any other child. Jan's mother spent a lot of time with us when when he was born and helping out with Elizabeth. And my parents were just wonderful. It, it's, it's a new grandchild. Yeah. 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 Aaron had a few health problems. He had, for example, an atrial septal defect, a very small hole in the wall between the two chambers of his heart. And we were told at the time that most kids, you can expect it to close by itself. You kind of adopt a wait-and-see approach. But Aaron was among the small minority of children whose atrial septal defect didn't close. And Chris isn't even convinced that the ASD was connected to Down syndrome. He could have been born without Down syndrome and still had the same hole in his heart. Aaron had surgery when he was three to repair his heart. He's also had some hearing and speech problems. He did have some problems with his ears. Uh, he wore hearing aids for a while, but, but now when um, he doesn't wear them anymore. But the only thing that he really receives regularly now is speech therapy. Um, and that's pretty common for kids with Down syndrome. And we're always um, keeping an eye on his hearing. You know, he still goes to school with his class and he learns at his own pace, I guess is the way you could put it. I'm part of a Facebook group of parents of children with Down syndrome that's a more international group. And I lots of seems like there's lots of services in the U.S. that I think, oh, wow, we don't have quite those same things always readily available to us here. Um but, I mean, Aaron started speech therapy before he was one, before he was talking. Um, he had, OT, like, occupational therapy and physiotherapy all, all before he was one and through infancy and then right up until he was walking. He was a late walker. He didn't really start walking on his own until he was three years old. So we were always involved as physio and OT and speech there's a common assumption that, um, that the disability aspects of Down syndrome are all really kind of inherent in the child with the disability. So it's sort of like an inborn sort of natural fact that you'll only live for a certain number of years or that you only have a certain IQ. When really, when you look at the history, it's all a social artifact. A lot of it is dependent upon how we treated or not treated Down syndrome in the healthcare system and the education system. And the, uh, disability is as much a function of social status and social treatment as much as it is in many cases of, you know, biology. As Chris explains in his book, Choosing Down Syndrome, disability is socially defined and historically, social expectations have severely limited the lives of people with Down Syndrome in every way. In the mid-19th century, life expectancy for a child with Down syndrome was less than 10 years. In the 1960s, life expectancy was about 20 years. Today, 
in wealthy countries, life expectancy is more than 60 years for people with Down syndrome. IQs have seen a similar trajectory. In 1949, the average estimated IQ of a child with Down syndrome was 20 to 25. Today, 40% have an IQ of 50 to 70, which classifies them as having a mild intellectual disability. Others with Down syndrome have an IQ in the normal range for the general population. These increases in life expectancy and IQ are not due to any medical treatments or medical discoveries. Rather, the increases are due to the acceptance of people with Down syndrome into the broader community. Before the 1970s, the low life expectancies and educational levels were caused by social conditions, not biology. Children with Downs were routinely institutionalized. The neglect in those institutions, including refusal to provide any education whatsoever, was appalling. The medical community also refused to treat the newborns with Down syndrome who had life-threatening but reversible illnesses. This history is a prime example of how a disease or condition is socially defined rather than biologically determined. Aaron, born in the 21st century, lives, of course, with his family and attended the same preschool that his sister, Elizabeth, had attended. We had him on the list to go there. And I remember when they called, I was like, can he, are you sure he can go? And they, they were so thrilled to have him come. They did have like enhanced ratio. So there would be an extra person um, to help support him in the classroom, to help him and support him through preschool. And he would just went, I think it was two or three mornings a week. And that was fantastic. And he actually made, there's a couple of friends that he made through there that are still has contact with them, like through some swimming programs. And then he started kindergarten. He always has a student assistant with him. He still has a student assistant that stays close by to him. And he's in grade six now. Aaron's assistant is an adult, someone we call a teacher's assistant in the United States, hired to help Aaron with day-to-day activities and just to keep an eye on him. So this grade six year is his transition year because next year he'll go into junior high where it's seven, eight, nine school. And so this year, though, I guess they're working on some different things to help him transition to the grade seven year. Aaron just he works on on things at his own pace. Chris tells us more about Aaron. He's a kid like anyone else. He loves sports. He loves hockey. We're Canadian after all. So we're in, we live in a very hockey focused culture and he just, he just eats that up. He'll watch hockey all day and he'll play. He likes to play road hockey. We also have a basketball net out front of our house and he's always asking to play basketball. And, and it's, it's been really difficult over the summer with the pandemic. The previous summer he was playing soccer and playing with his friends a lot. Chris and Jan, of course, encourage Aaron's love of sports. We just saw a great video clip of one of the members of the Down Syndrome Society. She was she's swimming and she's doing this amazing front crawl. And I said, Aaron, we got to get you swimming like that. <laughs> Aaron is also an avid reader. His reading from an early age really surprised me. He would watch things on YouTube and he'd start talking about the letters that he'd seen even at a very young age. And I'd never taught him any letters <laughs> to say. Uh, Jan will dispute this, but she thinks that we really did teach him. But but I don't remember teaching him his letters. And he, he learned them through watching YouTube, I think. <laughs> um, and so he, he's actually a pretty good reader. I mean, 
he prefers to be read to, but when I when I get him to read to me, he does a he does a good job. Uh, he likes reading, unsurprisingly, about hockey. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a whole stack of books about hockey and his favorite players, NHL players, and uh, he also likes reading about dogs. So he likes learning about different breeds of dogs, and he knows them. Um, if you if you if you're out walking around and you see a dog and and you ask him what breed it is, he can name the breed. He has amazing social abilities. Like he, in some way, he wins people over. <laughs> I don't know what it is. He's always got a smile on his face, maybe. But his fellow students in in grade six at his school, they absolutely love him, and they have ever since kindergarten. Some of them are just absolutely devoted to him. The kids are little angels. They make efforts to include him as much as possible in everything. And they're, they're really good ambassadors and models for how inclusion should work. And the kids really show the parents and the teachers how it should work. In a lot of ways, he's a pretty normal kid, even though he does have disabilities and challenges, particularly with learning. If he's not in school or sleeping, he's usually very close to me, um, especially now when I'm working from home. When I go pick him up at school, he'll run out of the school with a big smile on his face and makes me feel great. And Jan tells me that um, sometimes she doesn't get the same reception. <laughs> but uh, when he wakes up in the evening, if he's sick or something, he'll call out for me. And I'm usually the one that puts him to bed. So we have a very, very close relationship and a special bond. Um, and I feel very grateful for that. And his siblings are protective of him? Yes, very much. So Elizabeth, who's 14, she... Uh, very protective of Aaron. Um, and you notice it because of the way that she treats or mistreats our youngest son, <laughs> Ty, who's, who's seven. They have kind of a rivalry going, even in spite of the, the age difference, 14 and seven. She's always very deferential and always willing to help out with Aaron. But with Ty, she's, she's more um, willing to get into an argument or a uh, physical altercation. <laughs> and, uh, and Ty is very, even though he's younger, he's also protective of Aaron too. Aaron doesn't really need a lot of protecting, but but he's always setting the record straight when people think that Aaron's younger than he is because he's smaller. Ty's always pointing out that, you know, Aaron, he's actually his older brother rather than being the same age. So in his own way, he's, he's protective of Aaron as well. Elizabeth and Ty also, in the most natural, everyday way, educate their peers about disability. You know, and I remember her, like Elizabeth, reading a poem to her class during Down Syndrome Awareness Week about a child with Down Syndrome and, and just making it really simple. But societal prejudices toward different abilities remain a reality. Jen recalled an incident when Elizabeth was in fourth or fifth grade. She was reading a book and they used the R word. And it was a children's novel, and then she used the word. And I was like, you said what? And she goes, she goes, what? What's the problem? And I said, you don't realize what the problem is with that word. And that's when we realized she was hearing, she was hearing that, that word all the time. And we had never talked about what the problem is with that word. She was so embarrassed. She was pretty devastated. And she said, but they used it in the book. And I said, yeah, I don't know why they use that word in the book. And then finding out that, oh, her teacher used that word in the classroom sometimes. And mm. her, her friends are using it a lot. Like it's a really, was a common word that she was hearing, but she had no context of what it actually meant. So from that point on, 
we became really advocating and, and wrote emails to the school, to the teachers. When Ty was born, we're like, we got to make sure we don't get to grade five and not having had this conversation. Because he actually, he came home and they had a presentation all about autism in his class. And it was grade one, I think, or kindergarten. And he came home and he said, does Aaron have autism? And I said, no, Aaron has Down syndrome. He goes, oh, all my classmates telling me that Aaron has autism. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but no, he doesn't have autism. He has Down syndrome. But there's like, and so, you know, you get in this big conversation about different abilities and what it means. I think that, that everyone is a better human being for the variations in their family, whatever that variation might be. Becoming a parent of a child with Down syndrome really wasn't as dramatic as becoming a parent in the first place. So I think the biggest change in, in our lives, Jan and I's lives, was when Elizabeth was born. I wondered whether I was actually up to the task of, of having this responsibility of being a father. And then when Aaron came along, even though it's dramatic in its own way, the, the change wasn't as dramatic. We felt more prepared because we'd been parents for three years already. We'd had a baby before. I asked Chris to apply his training as an ethicist to the broader meaning of his family's story. Medical ethics is based on four pillars, non-maleficence, meaning do no harm, beneficence, meaning any treatment or diagnostic tool must benefit the patient. If the treatment has side effects, then the benefits of the treatment must outweigh its harms. The third pillar, autonomy, refers to the right of every patient to make their own well-informed medical decisions. And it's up to medical professionals to fully inform patients about all risks, benefits, and alternatives of any medical recommendation so that the patient can make a truly autonomous decision. The fourth pillar of medical ethics is justice, meaning patients finding themselves in similar situations should be treated according to the same criteria and that everyone within the same healthcare system should be assured the same basic level of care. Chris explained how, as both a parent and a medical ethicist, he reacted to the news that the amniocentesis Jan had undergone indicated that their second child had Down syndrome. I approached this from a couple of different angles. As an ethicist, respect for autonomy is really the guiding principle in most clinical scenarios. When there's ethical conflict, usually the way that you resolve the conflict is by figuring out who gets to make the call. Chris noted that in making decisions related to human reproduction, patients need especially solid information from physicians and genetic counselors so that patients can make a genuinely autonomous decision. When I approach this from the perspective of somebody, you know, the partner of somebody who's gone through prenatal testing and, you know, went from not wanting prenatal testing to eventually having an amnio, I have a different perspective on this. With non-invasive prenatal testing, what, what you see is, I think, a gradual uh, routinization of providing more and more genetic information to uh, prospective parents about the fetus. And what, what it means for something to be routine is that it just sort of happens as a matter of course, sort of like ultrasound. 
When Chris refers to non-invasive prenatal testing, he's referring to one of the newest medical technologies. Relatively recently, scientists discovered that fetal DNA circulates in pregnant women's blood. That means that rather than the older invasive methods of prenatal testing, like the amniocentesis that Jan had when she was pregnant with Aaron, prenatal testing now can be done with a maternal blood test. Medical ethicists fear, however, that this simple non-invasive test could eventually universalize prenatal testing, or at least put social pressure on pregnant women to routinely accept the test in much the same way that ultrasound has been normalized. These days, um, it's almost expected that you would have an ultrasound. Maybe these things are kind of heading towards the way that we treat ultrasound. And so if you have values and beliefs that are uh, sort of in favor of valuing the lives of people with disabilities, or if you're kind of skeptical about the need to technologize pregnancy or medicalize pregnancy, if your autonomous wish is to refuse these types of information, you're really kind of fighting against the current of, you know, normative expectations that, you know, why wouldn't you want this genetic information about your child? This is just a first step. I think we're going to see pretty soon non-invasive whole genome sequencing available for people. So you'll have information about the fetus's whole genome. You might have an odds ratio that the fetus, for instance, is going to eventually develop autism. The situation that Jan and I felt ourselves to be in with that uncertainty, that one in six uncertainty, that's just going to be magnified. You're going to have a whole bunch of information that you're not going to know how to interpret. You're going to need really detailed professional help from genetic counselors to make sense of it all. And genetic counselors will tell you that when they're counseling their patients, patients already know what they want to do, at least when it comes to Down syndrome. They have ideas in their mind about what Down syndrome is. It's a problem when people think they know about Down syndrome, when their views are really influenced by all sorts of ableist cultural ideas about what cognitive disability is like. So it's not just the, the uncertainty that genetic information brings us, but it's also the cultural beliefs about disability that people bring with them into their reproductive decisions, which are also decisions about what kind of society we're going to live in in the future. Exactly. Let me, let me read two brief quotes from your book. You say, instead of seeing the future child as a whole human being who will enjoy all kinds of possibilities for happiness and flourishing, prospective parents adopt a narrow view in which the potential child is viewed exclusively through the lens of a diagnosed disability. And then you go on to say a few pages later, medical professionals tend to see the condition as a genetic disorder that causes disabilities, whereas advocacy groups see it as a form of normal human variation and draw attention away from its status as a cognitive disability. Those are two related and incredibly um, important points, I think, that you're making in the book. One of the things that concerns me is that the easy offer now of non-invasive prenatal testing, not just to women who might be considered higher risk for whatever reason, but now possibly for all pregnant women, this can lead in the direction of actually stigmatizing disabilities even more than society already stigmatizes them. Yeah, I think that's true. The, the idea 
that you don't test for something unless it's a problem. The language that we're speaking here is the language of medicalization. So Down syndrome understood through a medical lens or through a scientific lens is just sort of an extra chromosome and disabilities. But that doesn't tell you what your child is going to be like at all, really. And we know that because children surprise us. And I like to sort of describe children with Down syndrome as the ultimate rebels in a way, because you think that you know who they are on the basis of their genetic diagnosis, but they're as varied and as diverse as any group that you'll ever find. The medical uptake and enthusiasm for prenatal genetic testing actually isn't just sort of an innocuous tool that's being offered to people and they can do with it what they want. It's actually conveying social messages about what people should avoid in pregnancy and what people should expect from their children. Here's another quote from you. Children are no longer a gift, unchosen and unpredictable, but instead made to order. The increasing control that we have over the genes of our children it has the potential at least to change the nature of our relationships with our children. And I don't know where we got this idea that having control was something that's ultimately desirable when we're talking about reproducing. I can understand, you know, wanting to avoid disease and sickness and wanting the best for your children, but at some point that legitimate desire kind of tips into uh, an excessive urge for control. You talk, um, especially in the last chapter, you talk about community. And you talked about about communal values. When you look at the types of parents that get kind of buzzwords, so there's the, the tiger mom and the helicopter parent. I recently saw an article about the, the snowplow parent, the people who try to plow all obstacles out of the way of their children so that they can get, for instance, into a prestigious university. It's all about helping their children become a certain type of person in the future. We do value competitiveness and making money, but we do also value nurturing each other, welcoming each other, accepting each other, helping each other out, paying attention to people's vulnerabilities and trying to address those, protecting people who are vulnerable. It's consistent with these values to bring a child with a disability into the world. And actually, people with disabilities have a lot to contribute to a world like that, not just because we, because they teach us something about um, being human and about the importance of vulnerability and, and protection, um, but because they can make their own contribution by virtue of who they are and the differences that they have. And, um, the different ideas that they might bring to the table on the basis of their own life experiences. It's important to really think about what we're doing when we're engaging in reproductive decision-making, because it's not just about what type of family that we want to have, but it's also about what type of future we want to have, what type of communities we want to live in in the future. And I see a direct line between some of the values of the tiger moms and the snowplow parents and the helicopter parents and the creation of unjust and unequal political and economic systems. 
You, you also make the point that those of us who don't currently have a disability could at any moment in our lives, a, a healthy society really is about taking care of the most vulnerable among us and also making sure that they're a thriving part of our, of our society. That's right. I mean, none of us actually lives a full life without being vulnerable and ultimately totally dependent upon other people because we, we're all infants at some point. And many of us experience that through our, even our adult years at, at various points or even through the totality of our adult years. And then many of us move into a situation where we're dependent upon others and we're vulnerable. Those realities need to be taken into account by the political and economic systems that we live in. We can't just pretend that we're all free, independent, invulnerable, rational decision makers, because that's not how we live our lives in it when you consider a human life in its totality. I really worry that if we have this illusion that we can weed out all disability in life, um, we're, we're really losing sight of the incredible richness of the variety in life, how much that we all have to learn from each other. Every time we lose a language in the world, we lose solution to human problems. We lose different ways of looking at the world. And I think it very much is an analogy with the dangers of prenatal testing and the universal use of it and the way we define what's desirable in a human being and what is not so desirable in a human being. And, and I don't, don't think we've really tapped into that, that way of moral thinking where a loss of diversity is a loss in itself and also potentially a loss for, like you said, solutions to problems that we might not even be aware of. There's something wrong with losing that diversity as a value in itself. The loss of different forms of human variation, which include disabilities, is something we need to tap into, that sense of loss. One of the reasons I think your work is so incredibly important is because now we're we're edging up with this non-invasive prenatal testing. We're, we are either stigmatizing or re-stigmatizing disability to such an extent that these decisions will not be made truly autonomously. We need to change the social conversation around disabilities like Down syndrome. We need to change people's assumptions about what it's like to live with a disability or, or live in a family with a child with a disability. And that's why I keep writing and talking about it. And I'm hoping to sort of contribute to that discussion, changing people's ideas. We also need to, even, even though, I mean, I think um, we're not, we're not going to ban non-invasive prenatal testing. I don't think it's a good idea to even try to, but we can do things around the edges. Like in Canada, I'm really questioning whether we should be publicly funding non-invasive prenatal testing. Sure, people should have access to it, but it doesn't. It's not really a you know a medically necessary test um, in most scenarios. I think we need to influence clinical practice guidelines. Should it be the case that all pregnant women are offered that test? I don't know. There needs to be real resistance to this idea that more genetic information is always better. Jan tells a story about an imaginary vacation that you're looking forward to, but that doesn't turn out exactly the way you envisioned. It's a metaphor for the many surprises that parenthood brings. You're planning on a trip to Paris, and you're expecting bright lights in the Eiffel Tower, but the plane doesn't land in Paris, it lands in Holland. And you're, at first you're pretty disappointed, because where's the Eiffel Tower, and, and where's the bright lights and the partying, or whatever? that you expected, 
but you've learned that the tulips are beautiful, that the windmills are gorgeous, that just because you've landed somewhere different doesn't mean it's not as beautiful and wonderful. And I'll end this episode with a few final words of wisdom from Chris's book, Choosing Down Syndrome, Ethics and New Prenatal Testing Technologies. Chris writes, Bringing a child with Down syndrome into the world is a way of refusing the values of a dominant economic and ideological system. It's an endorsement of different values and a way of living a different life. We need to build communities and societies that enable all of us to thrive. If we live our lives according to values that we actually endorse, rather than by values that we would ultimately renounce, we can begin building these communities. Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor. Join us next month when we learn about life after a serious stroke.